Shalom everybody, I'm Leo Cambridgeford and this is Unmarginalized. Please note that the following episode contains conversations about ableism, internalized ableism, fat phobia, the Holocaust and eugenics of disabled children. So please take care as you listen. And my guest this week is Pasha, a woman who, like me, has fibrillahemanelia, and that's how we met. Pasha was born and raised in California, lives in Arizona, and has a career in the banking industry. Thank you for joining me, Pasha, and welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So to start our chat, can you tell me and our listeners, Pasha, which kind of intersections of diversity do I identify as navigating? Well, I would say, obviously, the disability is something I I identify with, and that's that's kind of more of a recent identification for me. I think that there was, and we can obviously go deeper into that, but I think that's something I've really just acknowledged within, say, the last five years or so. Um, yeah, right. The good news about that is that it's allowed me to become more of an advocate, um, both, you know, socially and even in my workplace uh, for people Mm -hmm. with disabilities, which is great. And I think, you know, another piece of my intersectionality, and, and I think it's really pertinent considering what happened in the U.S. this past week, is um, I'm half Jewish. I was raised Jewish. I don't really practice now, but it is mm-hmm. a part of my DNA, part of my identity. And so, yeah. you know, seeing various symbols attached to hate groups and things like that is is also rather jarring and a reminder of that and and a reminder of the not so distant Mm -hmm. past so that is really been on my mind a lot recently my other half is portuguese which is not latino but (laughs) (laughs) bordering on um that's kind of it, you know, I would say that I'm, you know, I'm still a Caucasian woman and that does afford me privilege in, in society. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and I'm a straight woman, so that's an additional privilege I have. So mm-hmm. I grew up in a very, very inclusive family, which I feel very fortunate, especially in the climate that we're in today where Mm. there does not seem to be a lot of tolerance around so um just for context because when um we're recording it is middle of january um 2021 so um everything in the us that just happened was the attack on the capital so just for context for listeners in case this is you know when this is released i'm curious about in terms of the disability, you mentioned that you've only started identifying with that in the last sort of five years or so. Can you recognize kind of a, a thing that happened, an event or uh, something, in, you know, internally or was it a process? Can you talk to that a little bit? Sure. Um, so I, you know, most of my adult life, I knew that a lot of the problems I had you know, with anxiety and depression and things like that were based on feelings I had, um, I had sort of encountered as a child and just sort of let it stew. And I think something that we've talked about in, in our group, um, if your listeners don't know, it's, 
I created an offshoot of a Facebook group for people with fibular hemimelia. And I found that, you know, it was mostly parents and, and there were mm -hmm. some, um, there was a lot of looking through everything with rose colored glasses. And yeah. I was afraid that I felt like what we in the US would call a Debbie Downer all the time because yeah. my experiences weren't those of, of what the parents were expecting for their children. One day, somebody from the group private messaged me and said, hey, you know, I have the same issues you do um, psychologically. So I started an offshoot yeah. group for adults that are yeah. having trouble with, um, because not every adult has trouble with it, but some of us, it, it had a really big impact on our lives. And yeah. I think being able to correspond with other people who have this this deformity and have experienced some psychological effects because of it, not just the physical, mm -hmm. um, yeah. really opened my eyes. And, and one of the things that I know we have discussed on the board is that there you know, you were raised with this mentality that it could be worse, um, yeah. that what you have isn't so bad, it could be worse, you could have cancer, you mm -hmm. could have something wrong with your organs. And so that really invalidates your feelings, you don't want to see yourself mm -hmm. as someone who is disabled, because that's not what you're being told, you're being told that you're a normal child with just this one little problem. And so I had the same word used for me, Pasha, I was told I had a leg problem. I remember yeah, that's saying what I've that always said. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I have a leg. What happened to you? Oh, I have a problem in my leg. I was born with a problem. Exactly. <laughs> I was born with yeah. a problem. Yeah, that is definitely <laughs> yeah. a word I have used many, many times. And what people didn't know, and even my family didn't know until very recently, was that I had been suffering this entire time with just a horrible body image. And, and also, they didn't realize how much physical pain I was hiding because they kept saying it could be worse. So mm. I didn't want to express myself as being that disadvantaged because, you know, there are people that do have it worse. But it was really connecting with other people who were having problems with it that gave me the courage to say, yeah, I am disabled. I can't do everything that a person with two normally functioning legs can do. Um, yeah. You know, I have chronic pain because of it. And my body image is just completely shot. And, mm. and it's something that I have tried to work on accepting, but I can't change that. And I still struggle with that every day. And I've been trying, I'm 47 now. And I think when I hit 40, I really started to try and get some semblance of acceptance, just yeah. superficially that okay, I'm not going to hide my foot all the time. I was living in Arizona then, and I was tired of covering it up. I wanted to wear flip-flops. You know, I said, screw it. I'm not going to 
hide this anymore. And and that's when I got, I have a tattoo on my foot. It looks like a stamp and it says, you know, defective. And then there's another stamp that says parts missing. And, and then on my ankle, yeah. there's a received stamp that has my date of birth on it. And I had hesitated to get it because I didn't want to hurt my mother's feelings. And, mm. and that was another thing, you know, she, I think, also was concerned that this might have been something she had done. I think the catalyst for being more open about it was meeting other people like me who have struggled with it. And the other thing that really broke it wide open was when I was 40, um, it took me until I was 40 years old to even know that this had a name. I thought I had amniotic banding syndrome. Um, And my parents had always told me that my leg had gotten caught in the umbilical cord and cut off the development. Really? Really. And one day I was going to put together a presentation for work and I came across a picture of a baby girl whose leg looked exactly like mine did at that age. And there was also one of a frog. I will never forget that. And really, and then I saw that there was a different name attached to it. And it said fibular hemimilia. And I thought, well, what the hell is this? So I googled that. And I start looking at and every single symptom is exactly what I have. That was just I remember printing it out. And my mother was actually visiting me. I remember reading it to my mother over dinner and saying, this is what I have. And I I just was so, I'm not a very excitable person. And I just remember, like, I was floating on air, like this great weight had been lifted off of me, because now I could finally attach a name to what I have. Um, Hmm. But at the same time, it led me down the path of seeking out more and more information, and then connecting with the various groups on Facebook, and just kind of opened up a whole new world for me. And also seeing, you know, what types of, of, you know, treatments are available to kids today. But then you kind of hit a brick wall because then when you start exploring what can be done as an adult, sort of like everything just comes to a screeching halt because there's, mm. there's such a, a emphasis on pediatric um, orthopedic yeah. care for this. And I'm, I'm thrilled. Don't get me wrong. I am so thrilled that the kids today have so many more options. And I've seen, I would say, every decade of my adult life, I have gone to an orthopedic surgeon and said, you know, what do you think? And I remember in my 20s, the guy I went to, I, I was humiliated because not only did he have no idea what I had, um, was obviously uh-huh. not a specialist in that field, but then he took my x-ray out to sort of like the nurse's station area and brought the other doctors over to look at it because he had never seen oh. anything like it before. And I was like, well, this is a waste of time. You obviously don't know anything about this. And I, I think people take their feet for granted until something is wrong with them. They don't realize yeah. how much having a bad foot affects the rest of your body. And so Absolutely. knowing that you're stuck with that for, you know, 
for the rest of your life, basically, um, not just the hassle of having to buy two sizes of shoes and, and only being able to wear certain styles of shoes. You know, it's, it's also just the pain that comes from it. Mm. And um, so, you know, it's, uh, sorry, I've babbled so long. I don't remember your original question, (laughs) but um, that's all good. I hear so many people and I'm the same, you know, I've only started identifying with you know, being disabled in the last few years and I haven't known about the word fibrillomyelia until maybe two years ago or three years ago as well. So I think it's, um, and I think people maybe kind of don't realize that that can happen, you know, and you grow up just knowing you have a problem. And you mentioned that connecting with other people has given you that courage to, you know, be an advocate for people with disabilities and feel more comfortable to hide your leg less perhaps. You know, have you noticed any other differences since, you kind of said, okay, I am disabled and this is what I might need or, yeah. Not really other than being more vocal about it. I still have a lot of baggage to sort through. So Mm -hmm. one thing I will say is that from an early age, I would say, you know, maybe my preteen years, like starting what here in the States would be referred to as junior high school or middle school. That coincided with sort of hitting puberty and then also my parents getting divorced. And it mm. it sort of set up kind of a, a perfect storm, if you will. And okay. I realized that, you know, growing up in the 80s, there was a very, you know, in the 70s and 80s, I mean, women still wore high heels and pantyhose to work and, and mini skirts were in style. And it was just like, it hit me, I'm never going to be attractive. I'm never going to be okay. physically attractive, because I will never live up to these expectations of how what's perceived as an attractive woman would dress and, and be able to, um, you know, express herself sexually, you know, with, with sexy lingerie and all that kind of BS that, you know, that were fed. I, I turned inward and unfortunately I started eating my feelings literally. And so I started putting on a lot of weight and to this day, it's something that I struggle with. Because I figured, well, if no man is going to find me attractive, Mm -hmm. I may as well just keep eating. Because if I keep myself fat, I don't have to, nobody's going to hit on me. And then I don't have to reveal that I have this deformity. I was petrified that I would go out with somebody and, you know, even if I were thin, because I did go through, I finally lost weight. By the time I graduated high school, I was normal, quote unquote, normal size, um, or I should say socially or societally acceptable size. And I was petrified because I was like, if I get hit on is, you know, and, and things start to get, you know, hot and heavy, you know, it caused a lot of anxiety. And so after high school, I started back in with the eating again, you know, it was like Mm -hmm. no social life, just would sit home and would just gorge until I couldn't eat anymore. The only thing that made me feel better was being stuffed. 
and sated with food. And I blame myself for that. I mean, that was my decision. And then to make it worse, people, when my mom was, you know, in her heyday, um, she was gorgeous. And I had also been told once I grew up, you know, once I became a teenager, oh, you look just like your mother. That's another thing that makes me sad because my mom was like five, seven. She's 76 years old and she still has legs like Tina Turner. I mean, they're just phenomenal (laughs) games, you know. So to add insult to injury, I have this mother who people say is beautiful and has these beautiful legs, but I got her face and I feel like, you know, it was wasted on me because I have this shit body and I know that's so fucked up. You know, and it's part of, this is something I, I did go see a therapist to finally start like, you know, I've owned up to all Mm. this. Everything I'm telling you today are things that I have only expressed to people recently. They were things that I didn't want to acknowledge publicly or, or even to my closest friends before. But now I don't care anymore. I think we've said that on the board. You know, a few of us who are in our mid 40s are like, you know, when we hit our mid 40s, we just don't give a shit anymore. You know, (laughs) everything's out in the open. (laughs) Yeah. I asked the therapist, I said, you know, is it considered dysmorphia, body dysmorphia, if you have legitimate reasons you know if you have problems Mm -hmm. with your body because the Mm -hmm. obesity has also had a great effect on my body you know i'm covered in stretch marks i had gastric bypass surgery to lose weight so i have what they call an anchor now because i have a huge scar going down my abdomen plus one that goes across my lower abdomen you know and then i have scars from my leg surgery so I have this tremendous guilt that I feel like I never lived up to this expectation that I would be beautiful like my mother. And that makes me sad too. And I just, I can't seem to, I I don't know if I'll ever get to that level of self-acceptance. You know, that was where I was going with therapist was how to get self-acceptance. And and it was really hard for me because I'm a very, I I tend to keep things very factual. And a lot of the writing that I see about self-acceptance is very new agey like I can't see myself buying it I guess would be the best way to put it I I can't I can't relax enough to meditate you know I've got issues with anxiety and, and those again caused by just feeling anxious about how I look and how I present myself to the world and having this food addiction and I'm proud of myself that I'm acknowledging it now, but at the same time, I can't seem to fix it. And I don't know that I ever will. So I've kind of resigned myself to a, you know, kind of like a a life of spinsterhood, if you will. (laughs) So um, (laughs) that's, that's a lot. It is. It's a lot. And it's, and I feel like it's all rooted. And I just like, why couldn't you just accept yourself the way you were? Like, just say, you know what, fuck it. You know, look at my leg, look at my foot all you want. You know, I'm a confident, sexy lady. I cannot do that. I just, there's a mental block there. And I don't know if it started with kids teasing me about a lift, but I just can Mm -hmm. not 
process that. My head cannot wrap itself around that concept. Uh, what I want to say is how, you know, it, you've spent more than 40 years living in a body that is by so- society tells you is abnormal. And I think that's really important to acknowledge that those ideas about being deformed and about not being attractive enough as a woman, you know, not having the legs that your mom had. And I think those are all things that we are told as people by society every single day as disabled, especially women, you know. Um, And so we internalize that. I hope that makes sense. But no, it doesn't come from nowhere. It does. Yeah. Yeah. And I think things are are getting better. There's certainly a lot more self-expression today. And, you know, when I grew up, I mean, most people, tattoos were things bikers had, you know, my dad had, (laughs) my dad had one, but it was from his fraternity and he could pull it off because he's kind of scary looking. And so, um, (laughs) and he's a man and he's a man. And so, you know, women with tattoos, was like, oh, that's, you know, those are biker chicks. So I think today, you know, with the advent of the acceptance of body modification, um, yeah. things aren't as bad. One thing that does encourage me from the boards, too, is kids go in to school now. They are, you know, on the first day of school, they're getting it out of the way. They're going up and they're saying, mm-hmm. hey, my name's blah, blah, blah. This is my leg. You know, ask me any questions yeah. you want about it. That didn't happen when, yeah. when I was a kid. And yeah. I just remember very hurtful comments and, and kids staring at me in grocery stores and pointing at my lift and saying, mommy, what's yeah. wrong with her? And when yeah. I would talk about these things with my family, they were like flabbergasted, like almost to the point where like I was making it up. And I was like, mm. you don't remember it because it wasn't happening to you. And exactly. the most hurtful thing I remember was being in I think third grade I want to say and Mm -hmm. a girl in class broke her leg and so she had a big cast and crutches and everybody was making a big production about it and mind you I had not had any surgeries around the people I was in school with I had a like a three inch lift on my shoe and so yeah the one girl in class and I obviously will not mention her name but I still remember her name her face and everything about her to this very day she said she's more special than you are and I was like as an adult it still infuriates me because a I didn't want to be special I didn't want to be you know I I didn't ask for this to happen you know there's it was completely out of my control you think I'd like walking around with a block on my shoe and attracting attention I was just so, I still carry that with me because I wasn't trying to be special. I wanted to fit in like any other kid. And so it made me a very bitter person too, um, where I would turn around and be mean to other kids that were nice to me just because I was like projecting this onto them. But one funny thing, I will share one funny anecdote about, well, you may not find it funny. When I was a senior in high school, um, I was staying with my grandparents for a while while my mom and I were in between houses. At that time, my cousin 
Kelly, who's really sweet, um, but she was like five years old at the time. And so she would stay with my grandmother after she got out of preschool or kindergarten. And so here I am, I'm a surly, you know, 17 year old who just wants to get out of the house and go, you know, smoke weed or whatever with my friends. And so she would, she noticed it one day. Uh, My grandfather would always sit in his recliner in the corner of the room and he was an alcoholic. And so he'd just usually just be sitting there you know, doing nothing and um, (laughs) a couple of scotches deep. And so she said, what happened to your foot? And because she had noticed my toes were missing. And I said, I was bad. So grandpa cut them off. And she went screaming (laughs) to my grandmother. She's like, grandma, if I'm bad, is grandpa going to cut my toes off? Oh, that's and my so grandfather good. and I were laughing. My grandfather was laughing hysterically. <laughs> I always apologized to her about it because she turned out to be like the sweetest girl. I think that plays into the, you know, making up stories about it. Like sometimes I'll tell people if they notice it that um, that dad was in the Russian mob and they kidnapped me and they cut off a toe until he paid. Oh, wow. And, <laughs> that is intense. Well, you know, you just, you got to have some fun with it. You know, you've got to, yeah. you can't, I don't think you can start to accept it until you have a sense of humor about it, which is why I got those tattoos, which is why I'll make up ridiculous yeah. stories about it. I am encouraged because things, standards have changed. You know, people with differences are not pushed back. I think I'm very active in the DiverseAbilities team member network at at work because it's important to me that people with physical differences are represented. When I was a kid, any kind of physical difference was associated with mental differences, you know, Mm. learning disabilities. So that was the other thing was, you know, having Mm. a stigma that there was some sort of learning disability associated with the fact that I had a physical um, difference. And so that part of it was hurtful as well, because I knew I wasn't, I didn't have that. That's been my one sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of my fuck you to the world is, you know, I had this problem and people associated it with, with some sort of mental deficiency, but I've been able to create a successful career, you know, live independently all of my adulthood and, and, and really just be a successful person, at least career-wise, even though I'm barely holding it together sometimes mentally um, in my personal life, at least I can say, you know, I've excelled in my professional life. So, and I think it's also nurtured my sense of humor too. I'm kind of holding back here, but it's, I I do have a very sarcastic sense of humor. It's not just self-depreciation, it's just in general. I guess it shaped my personality in a way that Maybe some people might find off-putting, but other people find humorous. I don't hold anything back anymore. I just, I I still have a lot of issues to work through, but I'm completely open about my disability now. When you see me walking, you don't know how exhausting it is. 
because you're yeah. not no you don't know that literally every step I take I am making sure that I don't have an obvious lip but yeah. doing Same. that for so many years is exhausting it's a lot you know from my perspective just really interesting that I've also experienced kids telling me that I was the R word which I won't repeat you know and kind of implying that I had some kind of other disability a learning disability or of some kind I feel like there's almost like a need a need to be extraordinary or do extraordinary things in order to kind of be enough in a way because I get that's for me anyway like because I've got this problem, quote unquote, of my disability, um, that makes me less than someone else. So I only, I, I kind of have to, in a way, exceed every expectation in order to kind of be enough. And, and that's something that I've internalized and only recently sort of realized it was there and started challenging it a little bit. Does that kind of resonate with you? It does a little bit. I think I, I was kind of the opposite. I was a bad student and yeah. I do a job that typically you should have a master's degree to do and I never even finished my bachelor's degree. I am a terrible student wow. but I get okay. hyper focused on one thing and I just learn the shit out of it and the resonation comes from feeling like I need to be really good at my job in order yes. to consider myself a success. It really isn't a positive thing that so much of my mm. self-esteem um, yeah. hinges on my career success because I feel like I'm not mm. successful in other parts of my life because of this disability. And not getting fulfillment or happiness out of my personal life puts all the weight on fulfillment in my professional life and so it's kind of like walking on stilts and just waiting to fall and it's unhealthy but it is what it is I mean that's just where where I am yeah that's you know that's understandable and I think I mean I found it fascinating because we chatted before about you know the the sense of feeling that you'll never be as attractive as you know society tells you you have to be as a woman to be worthy and you know as women I think we are told that the way that we look you know as females that that is equals to our worth and then if we don't reach those standards which are fat phobic and ableist and racist as well and all the rest of it then we place that on the career for sure. That makes total sense. Um, again, I think it's an area where strides have been made. I mean, I don't think I would have been able to be in the position I'm in um, as a woman. And a lot of what I do is associated with IT. So there's sort of a STEM component mm -hmm. to it as well. I feel kind of fortunate that we are in an era where you know interviews are done by phone now and you don't really have to try and get yeah. yourself gussied up and and go into an in-person interview because i always felt oh yeah. i'm going to be rejected right away because i'm fat you know and mm. they're going to equate that with laziness and they don't know right. how good of a job i can do these 
expectations of, of what a successful career woman should look like, um, those outdated notions. Yeah. And so, but it's, that's come a long way too, I've noticed. That's another mm. thing I'm kind of on the fence on because it's like part of me is, wants to be accepted for the way I am. Because I know internally that it is, um, I, it's not something I want to be. It's that I have this dependence. Mm. Okay, I don't feel good about myself, so I'm going to eat. Okay, well, I'm going to try and do mm. something about it. But now when I go and try mm. and exercise, there's so much that I can't do because of my legs that now I just mm. feel like eating all my feelings again. So mm. there's so much interconnectedness. You know, there is that kind of sense of everything being kind of insulated. And um, that's not how we work as humans. Everything is so connected. And I think that's what intersectionality kind of is about. And I guess um, with what we're talking about, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, Basha. What is what is intersectionality mean to you? You know, I, I acknowledge I still have a lot of privilege as as a white woman you know i'll never know what it's like to live as somebody with um black or brown skin you know i only know my own limitations as as both a person with a disability that i'm able to hide fairly well and also as a woman who's ethnically jewish and and seeing so much hatred come up in this world and those are the two main pieces of my intersectionality i'm i almost feel like i'm not qualified to talk about it i think that's really important you know acknowledging our privilege in society and and i think what's interesting is that as someone who navigates intersectionality and diverse identities i think it does can make us more aware and have and maybe solidarity or empathy there is a great amount of solidarity there and and last week brought up a good point um you know as far as as seeing very disturbing imagery um as a jewish person and and being an anxious person to begin with you know i was texting with a good friend of mine down here who is you know very white and grew up in a very white city you know i said oh it's it's really terrifying as a jewish person to see that kind of imagery and she sort of wrote it off like well all of our ancestors had problems i was sort of mm. stunned by that because i first of all that's not my ancestors those are like my grandparents you know yes. cousins who were murdered so I, yeah. I look at it as, you know, anybody who is somebody I may have potentially met had they not been killed, um, I don't yes. consider that an ancestor. I consider that family. So that is fresh. And I don't think a lot of people realize how young we start to learn about those things because most Jewish people think about what could happen again. And that we have escape yeah. plans and we have, you know, that we think about how do we pass? Like my last name is not Jewish. It was changed when my family came here. I don't yeah. like it, but I'm grateful I have it. And I said, I yeah. can always pass my first name off as Russian, even though it's Aramaic yeah. for Pesach. And I told her all this after she said, I'm asking this genuinely 
as a Jew, do you feel threatened by these things? And I said, yeah, even though I don't practice, I'm still ethnically Jewish and these people want me dead. And so, you know, from, I would say the age of five, I remember seeing pictures of, you know, piles of bodies and things like that. And so that part of my identity has really come up lately because remembering pictures of them measuring people's skulls and noses and thinking, oh, I'm so glad I have a tiny nose. These things go through our minds. This is how we think from a very early age. So when we see somebody, you know, going, storming our capital in an Auschwitz sweatshirt, scares the shit out of me. Yeah. Um, You know, my grandma, because I... I grew up in Israel, and um, even though I don't identify as Jewish as such, more as an Israeli, but I am a Jew Israeli, if that makes sense. So to people, no, it's people our get ethnicity. confused about that. It's our ethnicity. Um, exactly. Uh, but, you know, my grandparents escaped. You know, they had to run for their lives and just lucky that they made it and a lot of the family were murdered. And, you know, my grandmother would talk to me about that regularly and from a very early age. And she kept saying, we have to remember so that it doesn't happen again and we have to make sure it doesn't happen again. Um, that is terrifying. And I think really important as well what you were saying about, you know, you don't practice and I don't really practice. But in the Holocaust, it didn't matter. <laughs> it didn't it matter at all matter. if you didn't. Like it makes no, it didn't make any difference because if you had a Jewish grandmother, you were considered a Jew, and you were the the aim was to kill you, and the, that lives with us definitely. Yeah. And it's and it's enabled, and it's and and we kind of sail through life with it in the back of our minds, but not really thinking, like, oh, you know, we've made so many strides, this could never happen again, and then we see something. Yeah like what happened last week, which was the culmination, I think, of four years of of people really coming out of the woodwork, no longer in the shadows and these, I mean, we knew, we always knew that they existed. And and there's always been, through the years, there's still been, you know, desecration of of temples and, and people having their houses graffitied with swastikas and things like that. And so when you're in the capital literally in the Capitol building of the country I live in and you're wearing, you know, anti-Semitic shirts, overtly anti-Semitic and and some that aren't so overt and and you got, you were able to get in so easily. I mean, that really is terrifying. And so, and you know, another thing, Liel, that I was thinking about too, when we talk about passing and, and what, would have happened if I had been there because deformed kids, you were either shot on site, like you couldn't work. So you would have been shot or you would have been sent to have horrible experience, uh, experiments, medical experiments on you because you, you had a deformity. And so that plays into it too. We've kind of come full circle because that, I think, oh my God, if something like that were to happen again, like I'm deformed, what, what happens to me, you know? So that I think adds to the anxiety about it because I remember them saying, well, you know, disabled kids were just, it's a lot to process. And, and so when I, you know, when I tell somebody who's not Jewish and not disabled 
that what happened in this country terrifies me, I don't think they really are able to grasp. They don't have the the knowledge and the history that we've had to learn what it's like um, and what our families have gone through and, and how, you know, just the things that fill our minds and those images all come rushing back that, yeah. that we see. This is like I'm literally feeling teary because you might be the the first person who feels exactly like I feel and I have felt that since I was a very young kid. It's incredible. It's almost, it's being, I feel grateful on the one hand that I was born when I was born, that, you know, that I am here to tell this story and to, um, to live a good life, but also just it makes me enraged and how how both of those pieces of our intersectionality literally intersect and how things could have been but we also don't rest on our laurels about mm. it you know we all we have to stay vigilant and and you know make sure do our damnedest to make sure that it doesn't happen again my hope is that we have enough allies and that this country has become integrated and and advanced enough now that that those of us who are at that kind of disadvantage can sort of all bind together now and create a very united front and strong front against yeah. the hate and and so that we can you know not have to think about those things exactly but they're always going to be in our mind Absolutely. And I think it, it definitely makes, um, you know, every event like this um, brings it up. And to try and stay optimistic, like I think that's really hard. Like you have to be actively trying so hard, if that makes sense. Like I feel like other people maybe have the ability to kind of be optimistic that everything will be fine. And there's an Australian saying, it, she'll be right. She'll be right. That's the saying. And it's like, yeah, everything will be fine. That's what it means. And it kind of, you know, that really optimistic kind of view. And I just think it doesn't come naturally to me. <laughs> no, not to me either. And I don't know, it's put me in a really anxious state. And I don't feel like I'm very useful when mm. I'm anxious. And then, of course, all this is happening during a pandemic. And as you know, it's horrible here. And so the one time I want to be near my family, I can't be near them. It all just culminates in a lot of anxiety. So, um, and Pasha, I'm really mindful. Um, you know, we had such a good, you I know, know great I've chat. Been babbling. Been, you know, <laughs> no, it's been fantastic. I love it. Um, I'm curious if you have a, you know, if someone was listening to our fantastic chat who is struggling with navigating intersectionality, whatever it might be for them, what message do you have for them? I would say do the best you can to accept who you are. Don't let it manifest. If you have problems with, you know, one or more of your identities, um, and, and especially if you're disabled, if you have strong feelings about it, don't hide them. Be mm. vocal about it and don't let it fester. Because then you find yourself as a middle-aged woman who feels unworthy and, you know, feels unattractive. And it didn't have to be that way. And so mm. if I could go back in time, I would have been so much more assertive. Be assertive and be honest. 
And if people mm. don't believe you, make them believe you. You know, it's okay yeah. to say that you're in pain. And mm. it's okay that you are, you know, the, yes, you acknowledge that it could be worse, but that doesn't mean it's any less painful for you. So be upfront with it. Don't wait until yeah. you're in your, your late 40s to, to come to terms with it because you're going to feel mm. like you wasted a lot of your life. If you have something holding you back, you know, be honest about it. Go to a therapist, talk to somebody about it, reach out. I mean, we're so lucky today. The internet is such a double-edged sword, but at least it allows you to connect with other people who have issues like you do. And Absolutely. so reach out because other people are going through the exact same thing that you are going through. And when you find support and you're able to talk openly and freely to people about it, it, it is a tremendous weight off your shoulders. What a great message. I love that, Pasha. That's um, fascinating because I think, I mean, I don't know about you, but I was always told with people when people were teasing me or, you know, or worse, to ignore them. Yes. You know, and it will eventually stop. And I think that, and that's the message that's been around for many years, but it's not actually helpful. I think it that um, it's like, no, it's not my responsibility to bear that. It is the schools and the families and the community's responsibility to make sure that these children and these people understand that's not okay. And it's okay to fight back. You know, yeah. it's it, it may not seem right. I mean, you're not necessarily, you don't have to be the bigger person all the time, I guess is what I'm saying. It's okay to fight back and, and to show your personality. I really wish I had done that really early on in life because I think mm. my life would have been different but maybe this is just the way it was meant to be for me so be who you truly are don't hide it because of of your yeah. disability just put yourself out there and and own it and have confidence what a fantastic advice to finish our chat on Pasha it's been such a pleasure I loved our chat we spoke about so many fascinating I <laughs> things <laughs> I apologize if I'm a little chatty but you know that no, brings up a lot all. of stuff I, I really appreciate you doing this and I really appreciate that you asked me to do this I'd like to respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I'm recording the podcast the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging. As we tell our stories, I want to highlight the traditional owners of this land have been storytellers for generations. Like this show? To support the ongoing making of this podcast, go to my Patreon account on www.patreon.com slash Bridgeford. You can also just make a one-time donation on my blog, Go to lkbridgeford.com slash support me. And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the podcast. Until next time.